Good evening, everyone. Why do you think elections are such a big deal in the United States? Every four years, we have a whole bunch of stress, a whole bunch of marketing, a whole bunch of people running around the country in a frenzied manner. And for what reason? Millions of people spend lots and lots of time listening to debates and looking at different people who have the opportunity of becoming president of the United States, but why? I think that inside each of us, we understand that good leaders are supremely important. When we look through history, we can recognize that countries and cultures have risen and fallen on the backs of good, capable leaders. And so in America, we recognize that. And so there's a huge push to put the best person possible into office. The last time I was here, I spoke on 1 Timothy chapter 2. The time before that was 1 Timothy chapter 1. This evening, I'd like us to open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will continue our study in this book. At the very beginning, I talked about how this is a book written from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. And so he is writing instructions to a younger man, trying to give him an idea of what things should look like within the context of the church. And so we arrive this evening in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to a passage that talks about leadership within the local assembly. We're going to see what it means to be an overseer or an elder in an assembly, and then what it means to be a deacon in a local church. Now, there are a few things in Scripture that I am highly unqualified to speak on, marriage being one of them, and leadership in the church is probably a close second. But it so turns out that when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he wrote it to a man who was likely single. We know that he was young, and we can kind of understand from the context that he probably wasn't necessarily the most qualified of leaders, even though he had a lot of qualifications. And so I take it as an encouragement to myself that even though I have not obtained a status where I'm looking back on what it means to be a leader like this, I have it on the authority of the Word of God that I can share with you some encouraging things and some <laughs> I can help you understand what it means to look for quality leaders. Before we get started in our reading, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you, through your servant Paul, took the time to communicate to us important truths in your word, particularly those this evening that pertain to becoming and leading churches. Lord, we want to be people who live according to your word, and we want to be people who understand what it means to be leaders. Father, we want to be able to understand and recognize those who are qualified to lead so that we might submit ourselves to them, that we might follow after them, and that there might be opportunities for those who are younger to grow into these positions. So, Father, I pray that you would illuminate us through your spirit to understand what it means to be a good leader and teach us this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3 to get started. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version, so if it has different language than yours, just try and follow along to the best of your ability. This saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. The first section here deals with what it takes to become an overseer. The word overseer is translated a bunch of different ways. There are different words that all kind of mean the same thing in the New Testament. But what we're talking about here is an elder in the context of the church. So to give you an understanding of where all of this is taking place, sorry, I have to back up for just a little bit. There are a couple of um, different views as to when 1 Timothy was written. The first view that I have, um, that I hold to, we see in the very beginning of the book, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I urged you when I went to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus. So we can understand from this that Timothy is serving in the church in Ephesus. And Paul is writing him a letter urging him to stay there and to set up um, different functions in the church so that they might represent the Lord well while here on earth. So this could have happened in two different times during Paul's life. I think it probably happened when Paul, after traveling on his first journey, went back around on a second journey and he met the young man Timothy and he invited Timothy to come along with him. And so he and Timothy served together for a while and then they make a visit into Ephesus. All of this is recorded in the book of Acts. And so at that point, I believe that Paul left Timothy behind to serve in this capacity to help establish things in the church. And so Paul goes on, and a little while down the road, he writes this letter, and he says, Timothy, stay there. I know it's going to be difficult. I know what you're doing is not easy, but stay and keep on keeping on there in Ephesus. Um, the second view is that it was written after the book of Acts is finished. Paul is in um, jail in Rome. He's in prison in Rome. And then we don't have scriptural, like, an outline of Paul's ministry after that because the book of Acts just ends. But some scholars believe that after he is released from prison in Rome, then he writes this letter to Timothy. And so you can kind of pursue and study either of those and try and figure out if one makes more sense to you than the other. But he's writing to Timothy to help establish him and help him to understand his purpose within the context of this church. One of the, thing that, one of the things that Timothy is required to do is to help choose elders. With the apostolic authority given to him through Paul, he has the ability to take what Paul has written him here and to go around and to start looking for men that meet the qualifications of the elders. Because we recognize again that having good leadership in the church is of paramount importance. And so what we have here is the outline of both elders or overseers and deacons. So Paul writes to Timothy, and the first thing that he mentions about a person being qualified as an elder 
is that that man must desire the work. I don't know about you, but when I was about 15 years old, I had a strong desire to drive a car. But when I was 15 years old, I did not meet the qualifications to drive a car. Because in the state of California, you had to be at least 16 at that time. I'm not sure if it's changed. I've heard that sometimes you might have to be 18 now. But the desire was there. And so when I was 15 and a half, I went out and I got my permit. And then when I was 16, I went into DMV and I passed the test. And so not only did I have the desire, but now I had the license in my hand that said I was qualified to operate a vehicle in the state of California. One thing that we do not want in our leaders is for them to have been coerced into the position. Could you imagine how bad that is if a man who does not want the job is required to step into the job? So Paul says, a man who aspires, who has a strong desire to be an overseer, desires a noble work. And so what does it mean to aspire to? I understand from other scholars that this is a two-part term in the Greek that means to really want it from within, but also to do what is necessary outside to get to the point of being qualified. And so it's not just to sit in the corner and say, I really, 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 really want that. But it's like me when I wanted to drive a car. I had the desire, but then I went through the training to learn the rules of the road, and then I went through the examination to pass the test so that I could get my driver's license. And so it wasn't just sitting back wishing with all my might that I could someday drive a car. It was having the desire and it was coupled along with taking steps to get to the point where I was then qualified. And part of getting a driver's license is age. Age doesn't necessarily factor in here, but it does to some degree, as we'll see a little bit later. And so as I lay that as a foundation to help us understand that there must be the desire, I want to help all of us understand that there are men who are serving as elders in this assembly. There are men who are serving as, other, as elders in other assemblies, and they should still have the desire to serve. But I also want to encourage those of you who are younger, who are not in this position, that if you have the desire, this is a good desire, and I want to encourage you to pursue it. It might not be something that you are qualified right now, and we're going to go through a list of what it takes to be qualified as an elder, but young man, you have the opportunity to serve the Lord in a capacity like this in the future. And now I say young men, but there might also be older men, men older than myself, who are young in the faith. And that doesn't necessarily disqualify you from future uh, work as an elder. But if you are an older man, but you are young in the faith, then there are some things that we will see today where in the future you might become qualified to serve in this capacity. Even if you were just saved last year, it might be that over time the Lord will equip you and the Lord will lay it on your heart to have the desire to serve in this capacity. Because good leaders are hard to find, but they're in very high demand. We need them in this assembly. We need them in every assembly. So let's go back to our text. It says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Notice, first of all, that it does not say he desires a noble title. That would be something that I might aspire to. If only I could get to be the, have the title of an overseer, then I would be really someone in the church. Paul is not saying here that you should desire to have the title of being an overseer. 
you should not desire to have the title of being an elder because the title is pretty much meaningless without the effort that it takes to do the work. But Paul uses the word work here because that's what it is. If you talk to the leaders who are here, both elders and deacons, they will affirm that being an elder, being a leader, is not something easy. It is not something effortless. You don't just wake up and float through life as an elder. You have demands from every side. People are calling you, asking questions, pouring out their heart, expecting you to be better than you are, expecting you to give them good counsel from the scriptures. And so if all you desire is the title, go somewhere else. But if what you desire is the work of service in the church, that is a noble desire. And we need more men who have that desire. So if you have the desire to do the work, here is a checklist that you can put yourself against to figure out if you qualify. And now I'm going to say it's a checklist, but in fact, there's no such thing as a perfect person. There's no such thing as a perfect elder. And so you do not need to score 100 out of 100 on each of these, but there should be evidences in your life or in the lives of the elders that show that you have a commitment to these things. All right, with that said, let's jump into it. Verse 2, an overseer therefore must be above reproach. To be above reproach means to be above disapproval. He should not be a disappointment to the people that he serves. He should be, as it says in Titus, blameless. Now, Paul starts out with like the highest of high in quali- as far as qualifications go. To, because to be blameless means to, to not have anyone that is able to blame you for anything. Now, I ask you, is that possible in a human being? It was in the Lord Jesus. Okay, great. And by the way, as we go through here, we're going to be comparing the elders to the Lord Jesus because he sets the perfect standard in all of these areas. But for you and me to be blameless, I mean, just to talk about what we did yesterday, I'm certain we can come up with a handful of sins, if not more. So what does it mean to be blameless? Does it mean to be perfect? To some extent, it does. But let me ask it in a different way. Is it possible for a human being, particularly a man, to be righteous? Those are are similar in their meaning. And in the Resounding answer in scripture is yes. It is possible for men to be righteous. But how does a man become righteous? Is it through his effort? Is it through becoming an elder and doing the work of an elder that a man becomes righteous? No. Is it by showing up to church every week that a person can be righteous? No. Is it through giving a lot of money to the poor or going out and spending all of your energy helping others? No, unfortunately not. Because if we could earn righteousness in and of ourselves, then Jesus would not have been necessary. The way that a person becomes righteous is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We get this in the book of Romans, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one, but God in his mercy allowed his son to die and shed his blood, and by the application of his blood to us in what's called the atonement, men and women can be justified. They can be declared righteous in the sight of God. And so, how does a person become blameless? 
the same way they become righteous. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting themselves to him. And so as you go about your lives now that you're seeking to be blameless and seeking to live a holy and upright life, to be blameless means that every time you recognize a sin or a fault in your life, you are quick to confess it. You are quick to get it off of your chest. You are quick to go to the people that you have sinned against or offended and say, I am sorry. If you have sinned against God and every sin is a sin against God, you go to God on your knees and you say, God, I am sorry. I have sinned in this way. And it's at that moment that God says, you are now blameless in my sight. I forgive you. I love you. I want you to be continuing on in this work. And so a man does not need to be perfect to be blameless, but he does need to be quick to repent. And this is something that all of us can aspire to. This is something that all of us can seek to attain to. Now, a man who goes off and he, he sins and that he doesn't confess it and he develops a pattern of sin in his life, that is not a symbol that he is living a blameless life. And so, as for us young people, as we look at sins, and for me, I've recognized that over time, and this, this is, time is a necessary element in life. Over time, you start to see the patterns of sinfulness. You start to see those things that you fall into. You start to see over time that when something happens, you respond in this way. And time after time, you recognize that you truly are a sinful person and that you need the grace of God. But that does not give you the right to say, now I can go on sinning so that grace may abound. It should be an encouragement to us to forsake those sins, to put them behind us, to aspire to be blameless in the sight of God. As leaders, elders represent the body of Christ. And so imagine for a minute what it would be like to have elders and leaders who are continually falling into sin and not seeking to make themselves right before God and people. That would surely lead the church into ruin. And so we want men who are blameless, who have a short account with men and with God that can lead us to do the same. The next thing we learn is that they must be the husband of one wife. Now this can be interpreted a whole host of different ways. Apparently in the Greek what it says is a one woman man. And so it can be interpreted that even if you're single, so long as you have the desire to only be married to one woman, that will be sufficient. In my understanding of this, in the way that it reads in English translations, I really believe that in order for a man to be qualified as an elder, he should be married. He should have one wife, and he should show over time that he has been faithful to her. It's easy enough for me to say, yeah, if I were married someday, I would be completely faithful. It's another thing for me to have lived with a woman through all of the ups and downs of life and marriage to show through my actions that I am committed, I am faithful, I am going to stick it out. Because that's what we want in leaders, right? We don't want men who flitter in for a couple of months and then go off into somewhere else. When we talk about elders in a church, we want men who are faithful, men who are going to stick it out through thick and thin, who aren't just following, going from church to church wherever it's easiest. Because it might be so that for the first year, it's just an easy job. Everyone's looking up to you saying, wow, you're doing such a great job. And then year two comes and people actually start revealing who they really are to you. And they actually start seeing who you really are. Elders who are committed 
are the ones who are going to do the best job leading the church. Next comes self-controlled. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. This is something that overflows from the Spirit of God dwelling inside a person. And so we want men who are filled with the Spirit and who are overflowing with the fruits of the Spirit to be the ones that are leading and guiding our church. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But what it means is to have self-control means that they avoid overindulgence. It's a leader who isn't an extremist, who doesn't go from one end of the spectrum to the other at every opportunity. He's got his rudder in the water. He knows what he's about, and he's modest in what he does. This is a good leader, a man who is able to think clearly, to understand Scripture, to know what his limits are, and to be able to effectively communicate those to others. That's a a mark of a good leader in a church. After that comes the obligation to be sensible. This means an elder should be serious or discerning, not frivolous, not rash. So when you come to him with a struggle, he isn't just going to explode at you saying how dumb you are to be struggling over and over with that issue. But he's going to hear you out, and then he's going to have the sensibility to be able to counsel you through those issues. He's not going to react to everything that he hears. When someone comes and tells him a report, he might have the sensibility to go and hear a second opinion before making a decision. We want men who are sensible. And then respectable. And respectability is within the context of the church. I only add that caveat because we see later that he should also be respected outside of the church. But within the confines of the church, it's a man who is noted to be of good behavior. It's a man with a reputation for doing what is right, which to me, again, emphasizes the need for time. He's not a man that comes rolling in, and then after a couple of months, people see gift in him and say, we want you to lead us. He's a man that's established himself. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be that he has established himself only in one church and he has never traveled. He might have a good reputation from another church and transition to this one from a job or something. But he is respected by people. He is understood to be a good leader. He is someone who has proven over the course of time that he is responsible. He lives an orderly life. And in doing so, he brings stability to the church. A man like this provides an anchor of sorts. He understands the word, he is grounded in it, and he helps others through all of the turmoil of their lives in addition. Next, it says that he must be hospitable. Now, I read this and I scratched my head a little bit because when I think of hospitality, I think of women. Is that what you think of? Because the women are naturally, I believe, gifted more so in hospitality. They love opening up their homes. They love having people over. If they've raised children, they love seeing them well-fed and well-cared for. But what we're talking about here is men. Men must be hospitable. Now, this is interesting because I wouldn't assume it. This is speaking to the men. It means that men must be the ones to take the initiative in showing hospitality. This means that the men must go out and they must form relationships with with those who are in need and must help to, to care for those people. 
In the Greek, I, I, here it means that it means to entertain strangers. So to have their eyes open and looking for people who are on the outskirts. People who might not be in the church yet, but that could be. This might have an emphasis on unbelievers, but I believe that this should have absolutely an emphasis on believers. Older men have a responsibility to care for the younger men of the assembly. And one way they can do that is buy them a meal once in a while. Invite them out to coffee and just ask how life is going. Bring them over to the home. One of the things that I learned from going through the Galilee program, which is hosted down in Louisiana, is that some of the greatest impacts that my instructors, um, some of the greatest impacts on the lives of some of my instructors were caused by older men inviting them into their houses. As they were living their lives as young men in the assembly, the older men took notice of them and they said, come over for a meal once in a while. What are you doing Friday night? Come on over. And they would come over, and I heard this story of one kind of rough young man who came over to a really nice put-together household, and there was a whole group of young people, and the young man, with his muddy boots on, kicked him up onto the coffee table while sitting in the living room. And so the, the guy who was telling the story like froze for a second and looked over to the host to see what would happen because you should not put your muddy boots up on a coffee table. He looked over to the host and the host didn't respond at all. And so the man who told the story is like, that is incredible to me. I would have expected an explosion, an eruption, something to teach this guy not to do that in civil society. But instead he learned godliness. He learned how this man would react to unfortunate situations, to situations that might cause him to have to do extra work later on. That older man just let it go, and he learned a valuable life lesson just by being in the home. Because of the hospitality, he learned a great lesson. Men must be hospitable. This is something that I think us younger men can aspire to. I know for me, if you want to be my friend, all you have to do is buy me a meal. It's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. But then I get to a certain point in my life and I'm like, well, what if other people, what if I want to be someone else's friend? Maybe that's a two-way street. Maybe it's time for me to start buying meals for someone, right? And so younger men, practice hospitality now. Look for ways that you can give to those who are in need. You don't have to have a lot. You don't have to give a lot. But showing hospitality is a wonderful thing, and it demonstrates the love that should be present within the church of God. All right, the next one here is able to teach. This one, as we get to the um, outline of what deacons should be like, is not present. So I believe that this is one of the most important differences between an elder and a deacon. An elder must be able to teach. Notice it does not say the elder must be the most eloquent teacher that you've ever met. What it says is able to teach. Now, as we think about opportunities that men might have to teach, there's, of course, Sunday nights here, and there's Sunday mornings at this assembly, but there's also opportunities in one-on-one -on -one counseling. If you come to a man, you want him to be competent in knowing his scriptures so that he might explain to you what's going on in your life and how you might overcome those challenges. So in a one-on-one -on -one counseling situation, or maybe in a small group leading a discussion, he might 
be able to teach then in a classroom setting, maybe in a Sunday school classroom, maybe in front of the church, or possibly when he is interacting with non-believers who are challenging the doctrine of this church, he should be able to step up and say, I understand what you're saying, and here's the reason it's wrong. So to be able to teach is a God-given gift, which is what really separates the elder from the deacon. But it is also something that needs to be worked at. It is something that requires an elder to go back to his scriptures, to be studying it diligently, and to be looking for opportunities to practice this. This is not a one-and-done deal. This is something that is an ongoing practice of an elder. He must be able to teach, and then I believe he must teach. He can't just be able to do it. The younger people and everyone else in the church is dependent on the elders' teaching. And so there is, at the very beginning of this, what we have here is a list of things that an elder must be. Next, we're going to get into a list of things that an elder must not be or must not do. Here we go. Let's look in verse 3. He's not to be an excessive drinker. That seems pretty obvious, but we have a culture in our assemblies of not overindulging in alcohol. But in the culture, you have to understand that this was quite a transition. To come from the world and to just give yourself to whatever pleasure comes along, to transition to a point where you're ready to lead God's church, there may have been quite a struggle in that. And there might have been men who were given to drinking quite a bit. But Paul says to Timothy, it's important that a man must not be an excessive drinker. If we go back to Proverbs 31, we read from Lemuel's mom that she writes to him or tells him, probably with some frequency, that it is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Why is that, mom? Otherwise, he will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all of the oppressed. There seems to be a correlation between overdrinking and forgetting their law, between overdrinking and not ruling well, not being able to maintain yourself and be able to lead in an appropriate way. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul encourages everyone in the church of Ephesus, don't get drunk with, with wine because it leads to reckless living. People who overdrink end up doing pretty dumb things. And we do not need elders and leaders in our church that are given to drinking much wine. Notice there's not a prohibition from drinking any wine. Otherwise, I think that they probably would have to abstain from communion in some churches. But I think that what Paul is saying here is that there is a point where there's, it's appropriate in certain contexts, but is never appropriate to overindulge. If we continue on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says that drunkenness leads to reckless living. But instead of being drunk with wine, a person should be filled with the Spirit. So there are alternatives that people like you and me can choose from. We can either choose to drink to excess and be filled with a lack of self-control and everything else that comes along with it. Or we can choose to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And a man that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a man who is on the track to be qualified to be an elder or a leader in the church. 
The next thing we learn that he should not be is he should not be a bully. Could you imagine this? This is, you go to a man and you're trying to express to him your issues, but he's got some grievance against you that he's never let go of. Or he's looking for recognition among people. And so in order to get this recognition, he starts targeting others, putting them down. Or when you come to him, he, he beats you up and says, why did you do that? You shouldn't do that instead of giving good counsel. We do not need men like that. We want men who are not bullies. But it gives us the, the opposite trait that he should have. But he should be gentle. A man who is gentle is a man who cares for the flock. One of the roles of an elder is to be that of a shepherd. And we learn from the Lord Jesus and we learn from David back in the Old Testament what it means to be a shepherd. A shepherd is one who goes after that which is lost. A shepherd is one who finds what is broken and binds their wounds and brings it back and helps it get back on its feet. And so an elder who is a bully who kicks the sheep is not a good elder at all but a man who sees what is hurting and does what he can to restore it in gentleness, that's the kind of man I want to follow. I'm sure it's the kind of man that you want to follow as well. Next it says he must not be quarrelsome. This ties into the last one, but what we see here is a, a violent nature. What we see here is an abusive man. He is not insistent on his own rights. He isn't a man who, who knows what he wants and does everything that he can to get it. Instead, he would choose rather to be wronged, like Paul writes in another um, letter. He, he would choose rather to be wronged than to dominate his authority or to exert his authority in a situation. It's a man who's not quarrelsome. It's a man who's not looking for a fight. If any of you have ever done a study of the Brethren Assemblies, and our history, we are marked with men like this. Men who are looking for a fight. Men who just want to be right. Men who are willing to stake, take a stand on a molehill and fight tooth and nail so that others might follow after them. We don't need men like that in our assemblies. We need men who would be willing to back off. Of course, we want him to be tenacious in the things that are essential, but in the things that just don't matter, we don't want him to be the one that continues fighting and quarreling. Part of his job is to help extinguish quarrels in the church, not add fuel to those flames. Next, it says that he must not be greedy. Now, this isn't omitted in some um, of the earlier manuscripts, but it's okay because we see in Titus in the qualifications for an elder that it is mentioned again. So he shouldn't be a man that is driven for money. That cannot be his chief goal and desire in life. Because for one, this is not a well-paying position, especially in our churches. This is not something that you pursue because you're going to get financial gain out of it. Now, I do believe that we see later in 1 Timothy that an elder is worthy of double honor, which I believe means both respect and remuneration. And so people should not only respect him, but if he has financial needs, we should provide for those as well. But that must not be, it may not be his goal in doing that. Because what happens when a man is seeking financial gain is he is willing to capitulate to the highest bidder. 
If you come in with a pocket full of money and you say to him, hey, if you just start doing this, that, or the other, I will donate to your ministry. If he is a man who is swayed by the opportunity of earning money from a constituent or those who are under his care, he is not a man fit for office in the church. All right, so we have taken a look at what a man must be, what a man must not be. Now there are a few other things. We see in verse 4 that he must manage his own household competently. Notice it doesn't say perfectly. It says competently. And have his children under control with all dignity. So this points me back to a previous point that I made on whether a man should be married or not. And I believe that the best way to have children is to be married to one woman. And I think Paul agrees with me. And so when it says here that an elder must manage his home competently and have his children under control, I read that and I take it literally. I take it literally to mean that a man must have children, and in order to have children, he must be married. And so if you would like to debate that, I'm happy to have a discussion with you. But if we just take it at face value, what we see is what we get. And the reason that I hold to that is because at the beginning of this year, I was offered a job working part-time at a daycare. I took the job, and for the past few months, I have been working from 1 o'clock to 6 o'clock, Monday through Friday, with kids ages 5 through 12. And let me tell you, it is a pretty stressful job. I thought that it was going to be pretty easy. You just go in, you're their best friend, you play with them for a few hours every day, you send them home to their parents and, and go on with life. But it's not that at all. I wanted it to be like that, and I pretended it was for the first month, and then month two rolled around, and I actually had to say no to a child who wanted me to say yes. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. Now, if you've raised kids, you understand a little bit of where I'm coming from here, because in raising children, and I don't, I, I haven't raised children. All I, the only experience I have is in this and summer camps. But in raising children, you have to learn how to say no. You have to learn how to maintain control. You have day in and day out of time to spend with these kids. And it's your responsibility to raise them well. And so if, after a few years, if you can survive their terrible twos, then maybe, just maybe, you're qualified to lead the church. Because we look around and we see adults in this room, but really what we are is a bunch of two-year-olds who all want our way. And so for a man to have survived that at home, that gives him some credentials to come into the church of God and say, I wasn't qualified for that. I don't think I'm qualified for this, but I feel God's calling me to this. So let's give it a go. And so, in verse 5, it says, If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? It's easy for a single person who has a single income and pays rent and two other bills to manage their resources pretty well. But as soon as you introduce a wife and kids and everything else that goes along with it, that is a testing ground to prove that a man is ready to be an elder. So I would prefer that my elders have kids of their own and, and be able to show that they have managed their household competently. Now it also says that they should 
keep their children under control with all dignity. I took a class in child development to try and figure out what this whole taking care of kids was like. And one thing that I learned in the class is that there are three categories of child rearing. There are parents who are authoritarian. That means they say what is going to happen and the child responds. The second is authoritative. That means that they pave the pathway for their child and then there's some dialogue. Okay, you don't want to do that. Well, would you like to do this instead? And so they still maintain their authority in the home, but they allow the child freedom of expression. And then there's permissive, which means that the parents are completely hands-off. Child, you don't want to do your homework? That's fine. I never thought homework was fun anyway. And so when I think about these things, I think that they can kind of correlate to the leader in the church. There's authoritarian that says, it is my church and I make the decisions. Or there's the authoritative that says, this is God's church. I am here, yes, to, to lead and to guide and to help, but by no means am I the final authority on everything that happens here. And then there's the permissive that just says, flock, run wild, don't hurt yourselves. And so when I see this, that he must control his children with dignity, I see that as kind of the authoritarian one. And so when he's at home, his children respect him because they have the option to, not because it's required of them, and not because they just do whatever they want, and sure, dad's pretty cool because he never disciplines me and never tells me no. So there's kind of guidelines within that. I thought we were going to get through the first 13 verses of this chapter, but I have talked way too much. So let's get all the way to, chat, to verse 7. I'll make a few comments about deacons, and then we'll wrap it up. All right? The next thing that it tells us is that in verse 6, he must not be a new convert. Your translation might say he must not be a novice. Now, this is um, talking about a person who is new to the faith, someone who has no experience in the things of the Lord, is not qualified to tell others who may have more experience in the things of the Lord what the things of the Lord are. And so this again points me back to this precious thing we call time. Where even if a man who comes in middle-aged with his house in a little bit of disorder, who loves the Lord because he has just heard about how Jesus died to save him, and now it's time for him to start transitioning out of the ways of the world into the ways of God, that there can be a period of time where he can learn from the scriptures, he can dive into it and study it for himself and look up to other men who know more about it. And then he can take it into his home life and start training his children and start reforming his own home. He can take as much time as he needs to get to the point where he is then qualified. And so we don't want to rush men into the ministry to say, oh, wow, you're an executive at Boeing? That's great. And now you're a Christian as of last week? You could do wonders for our church. Come on in. No, he might have some attainments out in the world, and that's wonderful. But to lead the house of God is different from leading a large organization. And so he, there are things that must be learned. So he must not be a new convert. And we see here the reason why is because it, he can incur on himself the same condemnation as the devil. And if you go back to the beginning, you understand that the devil was full of pride. He saw this, he saw being like God as a title that could be attained. And so his heart full of pride, he went after it, trying to displace God. And his condemnation was getting kicked out of heaven. 
he lost all of the glory that he thought he was going to attain by pursuing this title that would give him some recognition among the other demons or angels at that time. And so we do not want men who are seeking after the title because what could happen is if they're a novice, if they're very young in the faith, they might start to say, hey, I've kind of got this down pretty well. I've got this all figured out. And then they come out and they start telling other people what to do, speaking in ignorance. And so we give them some time to grow and to develop so that they are not run out of the church because of their arrogance. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into, into disgrace in the devil's trap. A man with a reputation. This is talking about a reputation outside of the church. And I think that this is, it doesn't really fit with the flow of everything else in my mind because we're, we're considering what's going on in a church, right? But consider me for an example. You don't know very much about me. You don't know how I live my life from day to day. You might know people who know me, and you might have had some interactions with me, but I do not think it would be wise of you to invite me in to be a leader in your church, having no understanding of what my life is really like outside of these four walls. The same thing is true of an elder. I mean, think about what the president of the United States had to get through to get to that point. Everyone was maligning his character, trying to expose his every flaw. Now, if we were to go to the friends and the co-workers of our elders and say, what's this guy really like? When he's working at his job, what, what is he like? We get to see from others who are observers in a different spectrum what that man is really like. I don't know about you, but for me, it's pretty easy to put on a show when you go to church. You show up if you're um, shirt's buttoned all the way to the top and you look put together and you don't say the wrong thing. Most of us can pretend pretty well for about three hours on a Sunday morning, right? But you get into the workplace and weeks go by and months go by and your coworkers start to see what you're really like. And so I, this is pretty cool to have the reputation of being someone who, as we go back through it, isn't a bully isn't quarrelsome, isn't driven by money, isn't um, someone who is proud and seeking only himself, someone who's sensible and respectable. Like the coworkers might actually go to this man and ask for advice, even though they don't care about his spirituality. And so in doing that, in making sure that he has a good reputation, he is less likely to fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The next few verses talk about deacons, and really the one thing that you're going to notice missing is able to teach. And so when we talk about deacons, they need to live up to these same standards. And so let's also think for a second, it's not in this text, what about women? What should women be like? There is a, a little section in here. Do you think that women should have the same qualifications? What about young men? What about young women? What about older people? Should they be seeking to live up to these qualifications, seek to be hospitable, seek to be kind, not quarreling with one another, not driven by money? All of these things are pretty typical standards for what it means to be a believer. And so I want to encourage all of you not to just sit back and think, oh, our elders are held to a really high standard. I'm glad I don't have to be one of them. 
but to think our elders are held to be held to a really high standard. And if I don't ever see myself being an elder, then let me take time to pray for them. But if there's a chance that I want to be of service in this capacity or in another capacity in the work of God, what can I be doing now to pursue living like that? What needs to change in my own life so that I might be one of those qualified leaders that can lead the church of God well? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we so appreciate your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, and for the wisdom that he passes along to us here and now. Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts. Show us those areas in which we need to grow. Father, ultimately show us who the Lord Jesus is and give us a desire to be like him. Take away the desire to have titles. Take away the desire for money. Take away everything that does not accord with godliness and help us just to seek to serve you in humility. And Lord, if you have men in this assembly who are being raised up to be elders, help them to have that desire and help us all to seek to live up to the standards that are laid forth here. We pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.